Bibles, we're in Genesis, studying the life of Abraham, the friend of God. Our text this morning, Genesis 21, it's verses 22 through 34. The topic we find there, even in the mundane routine of day-to-day -day living, God was revealing himself to and through Abraham. The title of our message, It's a Spiritual Life. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for just these few minutes that you've given us this morning from start to finish, Lord, to come together and have some fellowship with other believers. Uh, be encouraged, Lord, as we see uh, what you're doing in each other's lives. We come from various different walks of life and uh, employments and different things, Lord, family situations and all, but we come together as a spiritual family, as your children, as brothers and sisters equal in Christ. We get a chance to worship you uh, in a way that is meaningful to us, Lord, whether we sing or just sit and listen. And then we open up your word, Lord, and, and we have a desire, each one of us, that you would be speaking to us through your word. Not the words of men, Lord, but the word of God. And that your Holy Spirit, who is our teacher, who you promised us, Lord, would be in us and with us and upon us. That he would teach us, Lord. And the thing that we need, of course, is to know Jesus in a deeper, more intimate, more personal way. To be drawn into his love, into his grace. To come before the throne, really, which you say is a throne of grace and mercy to receive those things in our time of need, which is always and forever. And so bless us, we pray, as we work through these verses. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Uh, speaking of that, It's a Wonderful Life is usually chosen as the all-time favorite Christmas movie in America. It may not be yours, but it's certainly high on the list. Chronicles the life of George Bailey, who at first doesn't know that his life is wonderful. In fact, try as he might, he can never escape the mundane. On the night of his honeymoon, for example, his dreams are squelched as he must use his own money, meant for his honeymoon, to save the building and loan business. In the end, he's made to see that his life was used to help people. He's shown by an angel that the effects of his everyday decisions, starting in childhood, reverberate with significance throughout the world. Once he sees what he has accomplished in the midst of such a mundane, ordinary existence, there is joy and a new passion for life. In our text, we're going to find Abraham in a rather lengthy period of his life, from the weaning of Isaac early in the chapter till he is called upon to sacrifice Isaac in the next chapter. It's a period of at least 10 years and probably more like 30 years. In those 30 years, Abraham signed a contract with Abimelech regarding water rights. Not too exciting. Oh, and he planted a single tamarisk tree. That's all we're told about those 30 years in his life. I want to show, however, that there was nothing mundane about those years. Or maybe it would be better to say that in those seemingly mundane years, God was still powerfully at work both in and through his friend. Our lives can seem mundane especially compared to the Bible characters that we read about on Sundays. I mean, when was the last time you were thrown into a fiery furnace or you faced off lions in a lion's den? Your day-to-day -day life may seem mundane, but if you're a believer, it's not. Like with Abraham, Jesus is working in you and through you all the time. I'll organize my thoughts around two questions. Number one, day by day, are you revealing a dependence upon Jesus 
And number two, day by day, are you receiving a discovery from Jesus? Let's take a look, first of all, at our dependence upon the Lord. Devotional writer W.H. Griffith Thomas said this, The ordinary, uneventful days of a believer's life are usually a better test of his true character than an emergency or a crisis. It is sometimes possible to face a great occasion with wisdom and courage and yet to fail in some simple, average experiences of daily living. For the most part, we live in the simple, average experiences of daily living. We get up, we go to work, we come home, we go to bed, and then we do it all over again. Do we believe that God can just as powerfully be revealed in the mundane as he can in the miracle? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. For 30 years, Abraham went to work every day and did things like dig wells and sign treaties. He came home each day and he gardened, watering and tending his tamarisk tree. That's really all that we know about him for many decades. And so we pick up the story in verse 22. It came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham saying, God is with you in all that you do. Both Abimelech and Phicol are titles, they are roles, uh, not proper names. Abimelech is like calling somebody Pharaoh and Phicol is a title for a general. Now observing Abraham's day-to-day -day life, they concluded, God is with you in all that you do. Well, really? What was he doing? Well, we've just established that he wasn't doing very much. Uh, the most that could be said of him uh, was that he had dug a couple of wells and he was planting a tree. So it wasn't what Abraham was doing, it was how he was doing it. Abimelech's comments remind me of the great statement made by the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20, where he said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The understanding I get from the Bible is that Jesus is such a part of my life, he is so present in my life, that I automatically do everything as if he really were with me, since spiritually speaking, he is. And so the Apostle Paul could say that since I became a Christian, Christ lives in me and all, everything I do, I do for him and with him. And in, there's a sense of my life that he's present. Now, I shouldn't need to tell you that we all fall short revealing God in all that we do, or at least I raise my hand if somebody asks, do you fall short? I would say certainly. And mostly it's because we still struggle with the flesh, that influence and inclination to sin that remains in my unredeemed physical body. What did Abimelech and Phicol see in Abraham's day-to-day -day living, uh, dull as it was, that they could come to this conclusion? Well, in the ensuing discussion between the three of them, it is revealed that Abraham was patient in suffering wrong against himself. Abimelech wanted to enter into an agreement with Abraham, but his people had defrauded Abraham, and Abraham, for his part, we learn, bore it with patience. And so this is kind of the type of person, we would say, that Abraham was giving rise to this testimony. And so verse 23, Now therefore swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring, or with my posterity, but that according to the kindness I have done to you, you will do to me and uh, to the land in which you have dwelt. And Abraham said, I will swear. 
Now, it might sound like Abimelech was worried Abraham was not trustworthy, but I see this as just standard language. It's like the stuff in contracts you and I sign that make you sound like a criminal. You ever read all of that stuff that you have to sign? I remember the first house we bought here in Hanford. Uh, we'd bought some houses before, you know, and uh, the, the escrow gal, she goes, do you want to read these contracts? And I said, if I read them and disagree with them, am I going to be able to buy this house? And she said, no. And I go, then no. Uh, I, I'm just hoping that the government is looking out for my best interests, I guess. Uh, it, we call this legalese, party of the first part, that kind of thing, or everything excluded is deemed included. That's, I made that up, by the way. <laughs> Stuff like that. Verse 25, then Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants had seized. And Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this thing. You didn't tell me, nor had I heard of it until today. Now, please notice that Abraham agreed to the contract. He swore to it before resolving the issue of the well. He didn't immediately demand what he believed to be his rights. <coughs> I guess what I'm saying is that I would have taken this opportunity where, you know, Abimelech is coming and he's wanting something to say immediately, well, hey, wait a minute, you wronged me. Your men took a well from me and before we can move another inch, we need to resolve this. But Abraham doesn't do that. He, he enters into an agreement with Abimelech and then he talks about this wrong. Uh, he doesn't immediately demand what he believed to be his rights. Now, just because you are a Christian doesn't mean you must give up your rights. It doesn't mean you can never complain or file a grievance. Uh, it does mean you, you should complain and file a grievance uh, in a joyful way. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, and nobody, you know, anytime you're complaining or, or pointing something out, I should say, perhaps on the phone or to a clerk or something, you know, there's a sense of that it's adversarial, but I mean, there's, there are nice ways of doing this, you know, and I'm not saying, and I would never say uh, that, that you could never invoke your rights. Paul the Apostle, at one point in the city of uh, Philippi, after they had, uh, of course, it was after they had thrown him in the dungeon uh, and beaten him and, and all, that they wanted to let him go. And he says, oh, hey, I should have told you, Roman citizen, what you did to me was illegal. You guys want to resolve that somehow or what? And so, you know, Paul, another time, he, you know, he wasn't really getting anywhere, uh, being uh, arrested. And so he said, hey, I, I'd like to talk to Caesar. I'm a Roman citizen. I have the right to appeal to Caesar. So that's what I'm going to do. But he did it uh, with the gospel in mind. I mean, he wasn't mad, he wasn't angry, he wasn't frustrated, he hadn't been on hold for 20 minutes talking to somebody on the other side of the world, you know, that kind of thing that we get, you know, rankled about. Uh, no, his life was in, uh, you know, at stake, and he had been imprisoned and beaten and chained and all of those kinds of things, but he only invoked his rights when he thought that they would help the cause of the gospel. And, and so that leads me to say, generally speaking, this is just a generalization. It may not be true of you. It's true of me. We are far too quick in demanding our rights. Obviously, we need the Lord to lead us in individual matters. My only point is that we rarely think that God would lead us to be defrauded or taken advantage of, even though he was when he walked the earth on his way to the cross. And so the, the, the one thing that I draw from Abraham in this chapter, these lengthy years, the one 
focus of the Holy Spirit, the one thing he shows us is that Abraham was willing to be defrauded. He ultimately dealt with the situation at a time when it was beneficial, uh, but uh, he was willing to be defrauded. And, and I dare say that that is a tough thing to do, to be defrauded. Uh, because we do have rights and we understand fairness and things like that uh, and, and we have recourse. Uh, but sometimes I think we're just too quick on the draw in demanding our rights. And as a result, we don't really exhibit uh, the person and the nature of Jesus Christ in our situations. And so verse 27, So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. Then Abimelech asked Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs in which you have set by themselves? And so apparently it wasn't a necessary payment. Abimelech had no idea what was going on. And so verse 30, he said, You will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand that they may be a witness that I have dug this well. Therefore he called that place Beersheba because the two of them swore an oath there. Now I'm not, I'm not up to speed on ancient water rites but it seems to me that Abraham was exceedingly generous towards Abimelech. Abraham had dug a well, no easy task in those days with, I would say, rather primitive tools. They probably didn't go down to Miller's and rent an auger or anything like that. Uh, however you dug wells in those days, they, they had dug it by hand. Uh, Abimelech's men had seized it. Now he had dug another well. You'd think Abimelech owed him, not the other way around. So to continue this kind of American mindset that we have. Uh, so it's one thing that Abraham doesn't immediately complain and, and, and demand his rights. Now that it's out in the open, you'd think he'd say, so you owe me for the well. And so I'll enter into this new contract. You're worried that I'm going to defraud you, but you've defrauded me and your men took a well. And even if you didn't know about it, you owe me. So as soon as you pay up, then we're square. But instead, Abraham said, well, that's fine. How about I give you some ewe lambs that I don't owe you just out of the generosity of my heart to show that there's, you know, nothing between us. That we would say we're letting bygones be bygones. Not only had he met his being defrauded with long-suffering, Abraham gives generously to those who had defrauded him. You see now why the only conclusion a person would come to when looking at Abraham, if he acted like this all the time, was God is with you in everything that you do. He didn't just talk about Jesus or do a few religious things. It wasn't that, you know, on the Sabbath he would go and worship uh, at an altar and the rest of the time he was a shrewd businessman demanding his rights and uh, accruing wealth. No, he acted just like Jesus or just as if the Lord was really there with him. The most mundane routine life ever lived may have been that of Jesus Christ for the first 30 or so years on the earth. You ever think about that? I know you have because you've heard that famous poem, you know, No Ordinary Life, where it talks about his obscurity. But uh, for, for the first 30 years, he is God in human flesh where you would expect a lot more to be going on, right? I mean, if you didn't know the Christmas story, if you didn't know the Christian message, and somebody came and you had an open mind and they said, God came in human flesh, you think that there were a lot of powerful things going on all the time if God was walking among us. Uh, there was a lot of excitement at Jesus' birth if you consider a few magi and uh, some shepherds out in the field uh, excitement. 
And then about 12 years old or so, there was an episode at the temple where he got left behind by his parents. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, had a con he was having a conversation with the uh, religious leaders. But other than that, the rest of him is just hanging out in an obscure village learning the common trade of carpentry. And there's all these crazy Discovery Channel specials about the, you know, the lost years of Jesus and, and extra writings that people do about how when he was a little boy he would heal birds and stuff like that. But none of that's biblical. So, so really nothing, you know, they're just, as far as we can tell, it was, the, it, was, it was less than an ordinary life. God was here in human flesh. And after his birth and at around age 12, really we don't know anything about it. it is, and all we know is that it was, it was ordinary. Thus it is amazing when at his baptism, when he is going to begin his public ministry, God the Father speaks from heaven and he declares, This is my beloved Son, what? In whom I am well pleased. He doesn't say, in, This is my beloved Son who is finally getting on the ball who, you know, just got, you know, who I finally got through to after he was a deadbeat all these years, you know. No, he said, this is, this is my beloved son, whom right now I am well pleased in, who has lived exactly the life that I have desired him to live, only doing what I've told him to do, only saying what I've told him to say, who's lived an absolutely perfect life up to this point. Mundane, ordinary no amazing experiences whatsoever. And so it wasn't what Jesus had done, but how he had done it. God was with him in everything he did day by day. And you know what? You and I are now God's beloved sons and daughters by virtue of being in Christ. He is the Lord's beloved and we are in the beloved. And so our obscure and mundane and humdrum lives, they're exciting to God. They give him opportunity to declare that he is well pleased as we simply walk with him uh, in ways that would reveal a change of character. Now, day by day, are you receiving a discovery from Jesus as we finish the chapter? Chapter closes with a picture of Abraham enjoying his tamarisk tree. Verse 33, Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. The word for tree has been translated in some versions as grove. Most likely it was a single tree meant to commemorate this experience. More than just a memorial, it was where Abraham called on the name of the Lord. It was a place of worship. It was a place of prayer. It was Abraham's closet, as it were, where he met with the Lord. We talk about uh, prayer closet because Jesus mentioned that in the New Testament getting uh, in a place where you're alone with the Lord we call that time and that place devotions someone once said the gospel brings man to God and devotions keep him close to God uh, it, biblical because in James 4 8 we read draw near to God and he will draw near to you and so there's that precious time of meeting with the Lord. Now, I don't want to say anything that would minimize the importance of daily devotions, but I feel I must mention that there, uh, devotions are not to be observed simply out of habit or as a sort of religious duty. 
uh, and if I miss my morning or evening devotions, God is not mad at me. He's not upset. God loves me just as much. Uh, so you understand, I mean, devotion is very critical, very important, super important, uh, but not in a religious sense, not, not just, you know, to tick it off of a calendar or something like that. Here's how to understand devotions, or here's one way of understanding devotions that I think is, is important. If you've ever been in love, you know the feeling of wanting to be with the person you're in love with. You want to talk with her, walk with her, to hang out together. Day-to-day -day living actually interferes with your desire to be together. But you're always thinking about that person. It's as if she's with you the whole day, even though you're apart, and longing to be together. Uh, you understand what I'm talking about. How much more should we feel this way about the Lord? There should be a passion associated with Him that far exceeds our other relationships. Jesus expressed this kind of passion when he talked to us about our relationship to him. Writing to the saints he loved at Ephesus, great church, he noted that they were doing everything Christians ought to be doing, but they were negligent in the most important thing. Jesus said to them in that favor, famous passage, uh, nevertheless I have this against you, you have left your first love. Uh, and so they, they no longer had a real... A passion just for the Lord. They were serving the Lord. They were serving Him well. He commended them for it. He didn't say that what they were, you know, their lack of love canceled their service or anything like that. He didn't say it was hollow or empty. It was important stuff. Uh, teaching the Word and ministering to the saints and holding up the banner against false doctrine and all. He says, but, but you know, there's the most important thing really is that we would remain in love with each other, that there would be a vitality and a vibrance and a difference uh, in our relationship that others can see. And so whether you have fallen short in your devotions for 2011 or are on track to finish strong, you still need to check your heart for first love. It's the love of engagement. It's the romantic love that you find between a bridegroom and a bride. On a human level, we use the expression, the honeymoon is over. One writer said, and I quote, The honeymoon can last five days or five years, but at some point the heat and the hormones subside. Well, here's the thing. Uh, we haven't even had our honeymoon yet when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. The honeymoon can't be over because it hasn't even happened. We're still in the engagement period when love ought to remain white hot. The, the, the picture that the Bible gives us to understand the kind of love Jesus has for us, that it's not just mental, that it is emotional, that it, it, there is a feeling attached to it. He says it's like the love of a bridegroom and his bride. And in their culture, there was this long engagement period, um, uh, up to a year, where the bridegroom could come at any time and snatch away his bride, and it was intended to keep things fun and exciting. And, and you got the impression that during that time, those, you know, I know that we think about arranged marriages and all of this, but, you know, the, there was a romance to it. There was a love to it. There was an excitement to it. And then would come the wedding and the honeymoon and all that. And so we live in that time where we're waiting for our bridegroom, as it were, to come back. So we haven't gotten to the honeymoon. And so when you think, if, if I'm to look at my life and say, well, I, I used to be a lot more in love with Jesus than I am now. I guess the honeymoon is over. Yeah, I haven't even gotten there, so what's that going to be like? I mean, come on. 
And so I need to be reminded that I should be in love with the Lord. We're still in that period when love ought to remain that way. And I, I can't do it mechanically. There has to be an emotional component to it. Now, while Abraham was under his tamarisk tree, Jesus revealed to him he was the everlasting God. We should pause when we read that. It's a brand new name for himself that Jesus was giving to Abraham. We read that and we think, well, well yeah, I know that. He's the everlasting God. It's a name, uh, and there's lots of names. It's a great study, right, isn't it? The names of God, the names of Jesus Christ. I love that poster in the cafe that's up on the uh, fireplace, uh, or the bricks there. It actually is a fireplace, but it doesn't work. But, uh, and, and maybe you've never seen it, but it's got all kinds of names of Jesus. And you need a lot of names for, for Jesus because of the many facets of his person and his work and his nature. Uh, and, and here, as Abraham is walking with the Lord, he reveals to him, I am the everlasting God. It's a translation of uh, El Olam. Those are what the words mean, everlasting God. Here is what they reveal. One Jewish writer said this. He said, this name of God teaches us that God has no beginning, no end, and stands outside of and beyond time. God's nature and purposes are timeless, for God created time and is not limited by them in any way. Before there was a universe and before there was time, God existed without beginning and without end. The term olam also includes the unchangeableness of God. Everything we know changes in some way over time. God never changes. His character, His word, His promises, His purposes, and His kingdom never change. They never end. For us, this means that God is constant, dependable, reliable, and faithful. And so, uh, think about the episode with Abimelech and Phicol. Abraham was going about his day-to-day -day business. He was digging wells. He was tending flocks and herds. There were problems, like the times one of his wells was seized. <coughs> there were meetings. There were negotiations. But behind it all and above it all, God had his timeless purposes. It was all working together for Abraham's good. No matter what happened day by day, the Lord never changed. In fact, the conflicts and conversations Abraham were involved with only served to magnify God as eternal. The same is true of us in our mundane day-by-day -day lives. Our experiences can, if we let them, highlight aspects of the love and nature of God. In fact, God designs our lives so that the episodes reveal something of Him if we are looking to receive it from Him. And so Abraham comes out of this episode, these mundane day-to-day -day things, and instead of thinking, man, life is boring, uh, nothing ever happens, if the most exciting thing that happens to me is that you know, somebody stole a well, I dug another one, and now we've entered into a better contract. You know, I renegotiated my loan, basically, you know. and You know, nothing ever happens. I thought my life was going to be more exciting than this. Um, then God says, I'm the everlasting God. And Abraham gets it at a level. He says, yeah, that's right. The, the, every moment of my life is overseen and overshadowed by the fact that you're outside of time and, and, and what I am feeling trapped by is precious to you. Uh, you know, I, I'm in time, I'm seeing it a certain way, but you're seeing it from a different way and you're working all things together for good. And, and he has this beautiful revelation of God. And it's teaching us that we can have that same in the mundane. Now, by the way, Abraham's life is about to get pretty exciting. And that's a lesson that we'll look at next time 
uh, he, he's about to have another visit from God where he says, hey, now it's time. You've been prepared. You know, you've been hanging around now for 30 years. Uh, you've learned some things about me. He goes, get Isaac up, get up, leave early in the morning. It's time to sacrifice Isaac. And so, uh, you know, if, if, you, if you don't want your life to... I, I don't mind the mundane life when I read something like that. Hey, I could be mundane all the way, you know. Uh, now, and, and it just, you know, some people are like that where, you know, it seems like nothing's happening in their life and then all of a sudden, bam, some huge trial comes. Other people, you're in a trial all the time or a series of trials, you know, just... It depends on God's word. But through it all, God is the everlasting God. He is above it. He's outside of it. He's beyond it, watching you in it, and you can reveal God through it. Verse 34, as we close out the chapter, Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. This chapter marks the first mention of the Philistines in the Bible. The origin and background of the Philistines has not been completely proven. Ancient Egyptian records include them as a part of a larger movement of people known as the Sea Peoples who invaded Egypt about 1188 B.C. by land and by sea, battling Ramses III. According to Egyptian records, he defeated them. These Sea Peoples originated in the Aegean area. The Philistines were not Arabs nor even Semitic. They were most closely related to Greeks, originating from Asia Minor and Greek localities like Crete. They did not speak Arabic. They had no connection, ethnic, linguistic, or historical, with Arabia or Arabs. I only say that because sometimes, I mean, sometimes people get confused and they think, well, oh, the Palestinian people were the Philistines, and they were there, you know, way before Abraham was there. Well, the Philistines were there when Abraham was there, but they were Greeks. They came from the Aegean Sea uh, and, and the island of Crete. They were the original Cretans. Uh, well, they were. And uh, so anyway, just a point of contact. Now, why are they in this story? Well, uh, I, I don't know for sure, but I tell you what, they remind me that in the world in which we walk with our Lord, it's a weird place. I mean, Abraham is trying to hang out. He's trying to live this life pleasing to God. And on the one hand, you know, Abimelech and Phicol are recognizing that God is with him in whatever he does. But there's also Philistines. They would become the perpetual enemies of Abraham's descendants. They are marauders and raiders that never gave Israel a moment's rest. And so life was not easy for Abraham. You really shouldn't get too comfortable in the world. It's not your home. You're just passing through. I think that's what the Philistines remind us of. Whether you love to travel or not, most people tire of living out of suitcases. They long to get home where they can feel at home. Do you have a sense you're living out of suitcases, longing for home? Or are you looking to add more and more suitcases in an attempt to have this world's goods? If you're a stranger and a pilgrim, if we are strangers and pilgrims on our way home, we're on a journey, uh, you know, then we're, in a sense, living out of suitcases on our way to heaven. And then the, the things that we accrue to ourselves, they're just piles of suitcases that we're living out of. Uh, and, and looked at that way, you think, well, that, you know, it's like some of those old movies where people get off, you know, and the rich person, he gets off the train and he walks away and then there's like a pile of suitcases behind him that's like, you know, 20 trunks and stuff like that. And you think, man, you know, that's a lot of junk. And sometimes you look at, I look at my life, you know, I don't think I have much, and I think, man, I have a lot of junk. And, and 
and yet, you know, I want to keep adding suitcases to my life. I should have a sense instead I'm getting ready for my honeymoon. Pack light. Just like the airlines have size and weight restrictions, you and I ought to keep our packing for heaven to a minimum. Instead of filling your house, fill your heart with revelations from Jesus about his love for you. It's really a spiritual life that you want. Amen? Let's pray.